Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you speak to us clearly through your word. Uh, We pray now that as we read your word, that we might not just read these words on a page, that we might not just hear wisdom from Paul, but that we might hear you speak, uh, hear you speak clearly, uh, that you might convict us of the truth of what you've had to say, and that we might see Jesus clearly, uh, that we might be captivated by him and be transformed by him. And Lord, we pray that in all of this, you might give us a right understanding of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, I want to begin this morning by uh, sharing a secret, but I only want to share it with one person. So, uh, Josh, you are the closest to me. Uh, I always love it, Josh, that you stand like, you always sit in the front row when you're on music, and I find a great encouragement as a preacher. So, as a reward for that, you get to see my secret. Now, because I've got a microphone strapped to my head, I can't whisper it, so I wrote it down. And here's the secret. Don't show Saja, it's just for you. Um, so you read that. It's a little bit long, it required a little bit of explanation. All right, you got it? Is my secret safe with you? That's good. Now, I feel good getting that secret off my chest. Uh, is it a secret? Is it like, is it a genuine secret? Is it... It's not just kind of a made-up thing. I've just shared a secret with someone in the room. Uh, I've, all, I've told you all that I have a secret. Uh, I didn't share it with you all, uh, but only one other person in this room knows my secret. Lucy actually knows this as well, but she's off in kids' church. Um, now, just think with me what this experience is like. What's, what's for you, sitting out there, what is going on in your head knowing that a secret has been shared, but only with one of us? Are you curious? What could it be? Could it be really interesting? Could it be tedious? Could it be completely trivial? One person in this room is feeling very special because they know the secret. Maybe you think this is just a kind of cheap uh, preacher's stunt, like a kind of clickbait for preachers to get you all kind of drawn in. Or more seriously, when a, sh- when a secret is shared, it's, it's the way of uh, kind of creating a, an inner circle, Uh, those who are in the know and the rest of you who are not. At the moment, there's just two of us who know this secret. Uh, So if there's just two of us who know this secret, it's more like an inner line than a circle. But you know what I mean. Like, secrets can be powerful. They can be powerfully used to manipulate situations, to manipulate people, to create in crowds, to create those who are in the know and those who are on the outer. They can be used, sharing secrets with people can be used to draw them into your confidence, for good or for ill. Secrets can be powerful. Uh, Now, I raise this uh, question of secrets, this issue of secrets, is because uh, secrets and secret knowledge is part of what's going on in this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll remember that uh, the Corinthian church is is a divided church, factions have developed, battle lines have been drawn, and they've been drawn around particular leaders and particular teachers in the church. Uh, One part of the church follows Paul, another follows uh, Apollos, another follows uh, Cephas, the the Apostle Peter, and so on. And these divisions and these uh, kind of fracturing relationships in the church, it's it's, it's kind of tearing the church apart because they're lined up behind these different teachers, one that they think is more powerful, one they think is more effective, one that they think is maybe more spiritual or more gifted by God. And in this chapter 2, we see that it's secrets or special insights that are continuing to divide this church that's already divided over leaders. And there's this fascination in the Corinthian church, or at least in some circles, with secret knowledge. 
knowledge that some of them have and that some of them don't. And there are certain groups within the Corinthian church who, because of their secret knowledge, they're claiming to have special access to God. And if you look through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that uh, these, this group, they, they refer to themselves as the mature or the spirituals. They're claiming a secret knowledge about God that elevates them to a different place in the Christian community, to a different place with God. And that, that, that special place that they're in, it excludes all others. And we can see that this is happening in the Corinthian church by the kind of language that Paul uses as he writes his letter to them. Uh, he's writing to, this, to this, this church, and this group has formed, and this group refers to themselves as the mature. Uh, a bit later in chapter 12 and to 14, uh, Paul will address another group called the spirituals. Uh, they are another group in the church who consider themselves superior because of their experience of the Spirit. But here in chapter 2 and, and later on through uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul will take the language of these groups and he'll take their language and he'll subvert it. Uh, he does this time and time again. He, he, he uses their current situation, their actual experience of people claiming they've got special knowledge or special experience or that they follow a particular leader, and he takes it, he takes their arguments, and he subverts it. But the way that he subverts it is that he subverts it with the gospel. And so Paul is going to say, if you think you're mature, well, because of the gospel, here's what maturity looks like. If you think you're spiritual, because of the gospel, here is what the spiritual spirit field, the spiritual person looks like. If you think you're wise, well, because of the gospel, here is what the wise person looks like. And each time, the really mature, the really spiritual, those who are really wise, Paul says, it's only those who fully understand and embrace the simple gospel message about Jesus. The wise, the mature, the spiritual, they're the ones who understand Christ crucified, says Paul. Uh, if you remember from last week, uh, that's the real issue in the Corinthian church. There's all these, there's kind of smoke pouring up out of the ground all over the place, but there's one central fire, there's one central problem that's causing all the dramas, all the conflict, all the issues. It's the one problem, which is that they don't understand the gospel. And so what we have here in chapter 2 is Paul grabs some of the language about hidden knowledge and about secrets and about the Spirit, and he subverts it with the Gospel. And in this section, uh, Paul makes an argument for, and it's one of the most clear and important arguments in the Bible, uh, on the topic of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does He do? How does He work in the church? And so in the middle of this debate about a divided church and how to solve that problem of a divided church, Paul sees that a, 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 a key to unlocking that, that division is a right understanding of God's Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're going to spend a bit of time looking at this morning, a right understanding of God's Holy Spirit. And we're going to, and, and we're going to kind of work through the passage a little bit back to front, um, but it'll all make sense in the end, promise, uh, I, I promise you that. And so to begin with a, a, a right understanding of the, the Holy Spirit, uh, a helpful question to ask ourselves might be, would, if, if, you, if you took the Holy Spirit away, what would you miss? If you took the Holy Spirit, what would you miss? Uh, if there was no Holy Spirit and in Christianity, uh, the Christian understanding of God is that God is, in tr is Trinity, uh, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what would you miss if you didn't have the Holy Spirit? If the Father creates us and the Son redeems us, the Spirit does what? What does the Spirit do? 
Well, according to Paul, the thing that you and I would not have if we did not have the Spirit is that we could not know God. We could not know God. And that's the point that Paul is making here in chapter 2. The thing that you miss without the Spirit is that you cannot know God, which is kind of a big deal. Uh, Paul makes the point nice and clear in verse 14. Take a look at verse 14 with me. Uh, Verse 14 says this, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Now, Paul's very clear there. Without the Spirit of God, the things of God, the message of God, it is dark to our understanding. Without the, without, uh, we cannot know God apart from His Spirit. Or to put it positively, God can only be known through His Spirit. But when Paul says that, what, is it, what exactly is Paul saying? Uh, are we to say that God just kind of arbitrarily decided that to know Him, we need to know Him through His Spirit? Could God have decided a different way that we could come to know Him? Could He decide that we could come to know Him through the flowers or through mathematics or contemplation or meditation, but God just happened to choose the Spirit as the means by which we know Him? And because God chose the Spirit as the mechanism, uh, are we just stuck with that way if we want to know God? No, again from the passage, we know God through the Spirit because the Spirit is God. The Spirit is God, and only God can make God known. Look with me at verse 11. Verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, Paul's making a a simple but profound analogy that brings us to the heart of what it is to know God, to have real knowledge of God. The idea is captured there in verse 10. Take a look. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. You see, to know God is to, be, is to have Him reveal Himself to us. Now, as you know, there's, there's lots of different kinds of knowledge. There are different kinds of knowledge. There are, and, and depending on the type of knowledge, uh, there are different ways that you can actually know those things. Uh, Think about it, if we were to go kind of after church, take a walk around Victoria University um, and look at each faculty and go, kind of go into, their, into the, the faculty and, and see what sorts of things they have in their faculty to uh, what gear they use to know the things that they know. And so you'd walk into the philosophy department and you'd probably just see um, a big comfy chair um, because that's all you need. If you're a philosopher, you're mainly interested in logic and reason. You don't need anything. You just need a big comfy chair to sit down and think and reason and work out what you know. But if you were to go into the chemistry department, in there you'd kind of, there's more than just a comfy chair. Um, You can't just work chemistry out by just thinking about it. You've actually got to do stuff and you've got to kind of put things together and see how they react. Do they go bang or fizz or pop or whatever? Um, You can tell I'm not a chemist. Um, but to, to do those things, the chemistry department has beakers and Bunsen burners and lab coats and safety goggles and, and all sorts of things like that. That's, that's, the, that's the, the stuff you need to know things in their field. The marine biology department. You go there and they've got boats and life jackets and nets because you've actually got to go out and look at the fish and find out what they're like. You can't just sit in a chair and wonder about fish. Um, you can't spend your whole time just reading about fish. You, at some point, you need to go out and see the fish in their environment if you were to really know about them. But what would a department at a university look like if it was trying to know God? What would that department look like? 
what would that department need? Would they just need a comfy chair? Would they need beakers and a lab coat? Would they need boats and nets to know God? What would it take to truly know God? Well, the question here in 1 Corinthians, that's the question here in 1 Corinthians 2. And take a look at verse 10 again. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the question is, how do you know God? Well, the answer is not by mixing chemicals or doing interviews or going out on a boat or thinking about Him in your own head. The way to know God, according to the Bible, is to have God reveal Himself to you by His Spirit. We can know God only through revelation. That is, I can only know, that is the only way I can know God is if God first chooses to reveal Himself to me. And the reason for this is because God is a person. And personal knowledge always requires revelation. And, and it's there in verse 11. It's actually quite simple. What Paul does is he draws this analogy between human knowledge and the knowledge of God. And he says there in this analogy that there's the same analogy between our spirit and God's spirit. Just think about it. If you wanted to know things about me, there's all sorts of things you could do. Uh, you could Google me. I'm sure you've done that to other people. Uh, you could Google me and you could find, you know, a bunch of terrible sermons I've preached over the years and um, photos from, from all over the place. Uh, you could Facebook stalk me, and I'm sure you've done that too. Um, maybe not me in particular, I'm not that interesting. Um, you can see all the sorts of things I post and share online. Uh, if you wanted to know about me, you could ask my family and friends what I'm like, what do they know about me. Uh, you could gain a lot of data and information about me. You could know things about me. But what would it take for you to actually know me? Not just know about me, but to actually know me. Well, if you really want to know me, if you really want to know what's going inside, on inside my head, if you really want to know what makes me tick, I need to reveal myself to you. And only I can do that. Only I can truly reveal myself to you. Earlier in the service, I shared a, a secret with Josh. It was an act of revelation. I disclosed something to him that wasn't his unless I gave it to him. I revealed a secret to him. I made myself known to him. And if I hadn't done it, there was no other way he would have been able to understand or know that about me. Now, what I revealed to him, it turns out it wasn't all that interesting. All I said was that yesterday we had the Williams over for a barbecue and, and when I was cooking, something fell off the barbecue onto the ground and I picked it up and put it back on the plate anyway. And at this point, some of you are reconsidering whether you're coming to newish lunch. Uh, some of you are grossed out. I, couldn't, I can't believe that he did that. I can assure I didn't break the three-second rule. I was very fast. And I made sure that it was, only, it was a bread roll and it landed, and I made sure that I ate that one because we didn't have enough to go around. Um, but you wouldn't know that unless I told you. I had to reveal that. And Paul draws the analogy there in verse 11. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That is, only God can reveal it. Only God can make God known. We can't sneak up on God. We can't put Him in a test tube and run experiments on Him. We cannot reason our way to God with powerful arguments. And it's not because the evidence for God is flimsy. It's just simply the nature of the object that we're inquiring after. 
It's because of who God is. Because if God is a person, then God needs to reveal Himself to us. God needs to choose to make Himself known. Now, I want to make sure that we've, we've got this, because this is really important for what it is to trust and follow Jesus and read the Bible and understand who God is. The reason we can't think our way to God, the reason we can't experiment our way to knowing God, the reason we can't do maths or physics or chemistry or philosophy or marine biology to know God is because God is a person. The only way to know a person is for them to reveal themselves to you. And so even though there are good philosophical arguments for the existence of God, even though there is great historical evidence for the biblical story, particularly the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, even though the whole idea of scientific inquiry begins upon the foundation that God created the world with consistency and order, even though all those things are true, the only way that we can know God is for God to reveal Himself to us by His Spirit. Have a look at verse 9. Verse 9, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. Verse 10, These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. Knowledge of God comes only through revelation by the Spirit of God. God needs to choose to make Himself known to us. God needs to choose to make Himself known to us. That's the point that Paul is making here in chapter 2. So people who think that they've come up with some technique or some tradition or some method to gain higher access to God, Paul is saying no. Knowledge of God comes through His Spirit and God chooses to make Himself known to us. Now there are some implications for us in this and the first is that because we know that God is revealed by His Spirit, then it means that we ought to pray we ought to pray. See, as we gather here on a Sunday morning or as we gather midweek in our community groups or even as we uh, kind of sit down as an individual reading our Bible for ourselves over our morning coffee, we need to recognize that it's an utterly useless exercise unless God in His Spirit shows up. See, as, long as, uh, see, as we long to know God as we read the Bible, unless God makes Himself known by His Spirit, then we will not know Him. And this means that here at City on a Hill, kind of, we, we take the Bible really seriously, we believe it's the Word of God, uh, but the Bible is not a textbook. The Bible is not a textbook. It's not like a uni textbook where if you sit down and you read it from cover to cover, if you master the Bible, then you've mastered the subject. It's not like that. If you master the Bible, you have not mastered God. There, there, in fact, there are plenty of people in universities around the world who know the Bible better in, in their original languages than you or I ever will, and yet they confidently say they don't know God. Because God is God even over His revelation. God needs to decide to make Himself known if we're to know Him. And so as we gather here on a Sunday morning, we're involved not in an intellectual exercise, even though we do engage our brains, we're involved in a fundamentally spiritual exercise. We want to know a person we want to be related to by someone who has chosen to relate himself to us. And so what we need to do is we need to pray. We need to pray and ask for God to reveal himself to us. Pray before the service. Pray during our service. Pray before we read the Bible and before the sermon is preached. Asking God graciously to speak to us through his word as he promises he will do. We need to pray that God will make himself known to us. 
And there's another thing about personal knowledge, and this is uh, that personal knowledge has implications. Personal knowledge always affects the person who knows it. It leads to change. Some of you are going to reconsider an invitation to a barbecue at my house now because of the personal knowledge I gave you. Uh, now, there are some topics where we learn stuff, but the, the knowledge we have is, it barely touches us. You could, you could go home and read up in your encyclopedia, if you have one, uh, all about the tulip markets in the Netherlands, or you could uh, spend the afternoon reading about uh, the history of the South China Sea and learn all sorts of interesting things about that. And we could know all these things, but they would have almost no impact on who you are on how you live, on your day-to-day life. We could know them and be completely unaffected by that knowledge. But the knowledge of God, because it is personal knowledge, it just isn't like that. To know God is to not just have data in your head, it's not just to have logical proofs or historical justifications. No, to know God is to know that He is your God, that He is the one who made you and gives you life and breath. To know God is to know that He is the holy God, the one who you have rejected and ignored, To know God is to know that He is the Saviour, the one who died in your place to redeem you and to give you new hope and new life. And to know this God is to respond to that knowledge, to not just have the facts in your head, but to respond, is to repent, is to rejoice, it's to pray, it's to worship that God, because knowledge of God leads to change as He reveals Himself to us. Now, to wrap, up, to wrap up, I want to take us back to Corinth, and I want, uh, to see, I want you to see that even though um, the issue that they're kind of dealing with is maybe treating God more like a textbook rather than a person, um, sorry, even though our issue is often that we treat God more like a textbook rather than a person, the issue in Corinth was the other way around. Uh, in Corinth, they had the idea that they had secret knowledge, the idea that you could graduate from Christianity 101 to an improved Christianity 201 with this special and secret knowledge. And so you, in Corinth, you have this kind of post-Bible, post-Jesus situation where there are people running around saying that they've now moved beyond what the Apostle Paul had come and taught. But come back to the passage. In verse 6, Paul begins by addressing this group known as the mature. In verse 6, he addresses this elite spiritual gang, the ones who had this extra helping of knowledge from God, knowledge of God from the Spirit. And, and look at what Paul says to them. He says that those without the Spirit, those without spiritual insight, those without the secret wisdom of God, well, they are those who reject Jesus. Now, take a look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, that is, Jesus. And so the person who is really mature, the person who is really animated by the Spirit, they are the ones whose attention and love and devotion is directed towards God, what God has done for them in Jesus. That is the spiritual person, says Paul. The one who trusts and worships and serves Jesus. The spiritual person is not the person who knows the most stuff. It's not the person who's been around here the longest. It's not the person who's had a particular experience. It's not the person who's moved beyond the Bible in their knowledge of God. The spiritual person, says Paul, is the one who trusts and worships and serves Jesus. And what about a community? What about a church? What will be the telltale sign that a church is a church where the Spirit of God is at work? How could you know for certain that God had shown up and that His Spirit was with us? 
Well, the sign, again, according to Paul, the sign would be that Christ and Him crucified was known and loved and worshipped and glorified in that church. Because that's what the Spirit does, says Paul. The Spirit's work is all about Jesus. It's all about God revealing Himself to us in Jesus, the crucified Lord. I wonder whether you've ever kind of driven uh, down State Highway 1, the freeway, as it wraps around the harbour at night, and you kind of look over the harbour to the left and you see uh, St. Gerard's Church and Monastery perched high above the hills of Oriental Bay. You see they're kind of standing out. Now, the reason you can see that from, you know, 10 kilometres away on the other side of the harbour is because there are dozens of bright lights, all positioned carefully, shining brightly up onto that building. And they're purposely put there. The, the, The lights, they're there, they're out of the way, you don't even notice them, but they shine brightly on that building so you can see it from all around. And the lights there, their job is to point to the beauty of that building. And the Spirit of God is just like that. Paul says the Spirit of God is delighted when our attention is drawn to Jesus, to Him and Him crucified. To not be obsessed by the light or how bright the light is or what the light is doing, but to see Christ and Him crucified. When people come to know God through the gospel, when their lives are transformed by the gospel, that is when God's Holy Spirit is doing His work amongst us. And why don't you pray with me that God will continue to do that work through His Spirit and His Word so that we might see Jesus and see Him clearly. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for Your Word that is not just words on a page, but is Your Word to us. And it has made Your Word to us by Your Holy Spirit. We pray that we might not be people who are obsessed about special knowledge or special experiences. We might not be a church that's divided between an in-crowd and an out-crowd, those who have certain secrets, but that we might be a church captivated by your Spirit as we focus on Jesus, that we might be a church who knows you through your Spirit and your Word, who knows you through the Gospel through the simple message of Christ crucified. We pray all these things in His name. Amen.